Welcome to The S Factor. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of The S Factor. I'm your host Chuck Shazer and we are listening to one of the coolest songs ever right now. Oh my goodness, I love that song. I cannot get enough of it. Thank you very much for joining me today. This broadcast is actually pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any phone calls today, but I want to thank you anyway for joining me. Hopefully next month, on the next S-Factor, which is, by the way, the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock, right here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT. Hopefully next month I'll be in the station and I can take some live calls. It's always a lot of fun. So what does the S stand for? If you've never heard the show before, the S stands for science. And it is my pleasure to take you on the science journey as we learn all about the month's science news. And we our topic today is actually going to be, our main focus today is going to be on the science of viruses. How timely. Of course, all of our lives are impacted by this coronavirus And I hope everyone out there is taking the proper safety precautions and is very safe and taking care of your family, yourself, your family and friends, of course. Just be safe out there. Don't forget to check out scienceanimated.net for all things science. There you can purchase Science Animated, The Human Body, watch the Orbit Show YouTube series, and also listen to past S-Factor radio shows via the S-Factor podcast. All of this is available at scienceanimated.net. And it's actually a perfect time to check out scienceanimated.net because, of course, a lot of kids are staying home now. A lot of homeschooling. It's kind of like the nation is homeschooling now. Out of nowhere. Boom. Just like that. All of a sudden. If you're looking for some really cool educational content, we have the Orbit Show. It's all family-friendly. Everything on scienceanimated.net is family-friendly. It's all about science and education. Check out my website, scienceanimated.net. So we have some really interesting news that has happened in the world of science in the last month. We're going to get into that. And the science news, of course, as always, is brought to you by Tony Fit. Are you ready to get into the best shape of your life? Certified personal trainer Tony Basil can assist you in making that a reality. Text READY to 609-674-8077. Again, text READY to 609-674-8077. I mean, summer is right around the corner, be on the beach, and we all love love to look good, don't we? So if you want to get in better shape, there's plenty of time still, you can contact Tony Basil. And of course, during this time period, everyone is, you know, doing the the streaming, you're video chatting with your friends. I'm sure Tony can put something like that together for you, so she can show you some exercises via a, a live training session, but give her a call. And text her ready to that phone number, or of course, you can reach her at tawnyfit at gmail.com for more information and rates. On to the science news. Cave find shows Neanderthals collected seafood, scientists say. Neanderthals made extensive use of coastal environments, munching on fish, crabs, and mussels, researchers have found in the latest study to reveal similarities between modern humans and our big-browed cousins. Until now, many Neanderthal sites have shown only small-scale use of marine resources, for example, scattered shells. But now, archaeologists have excavated a cave on the coast of Portugal 
and discovered a huge structured deposit of remains, including from mussels and lipids dating back between 106,000 and 86,000 years ago. Researchers say the discovery shows that Neanderthals systematically collected seafood. In some layers, the density of shells was as high as 370 kilograms per cubic meter. They say this is exciting news because the use of marine resources on such a scale, and in such a way, had previously been thought to be a trait of modern humans. That is intriguing. NASA fixes Mars lander by hitting it with a shovel! NASA may have a multi-billion dollar budget and some of the most advanced technology in the world, but when the Mars InSight lander got into a spot of bother, scientists came up with a charmingly rudimentary fix for its space technology. Hit it with a shovel. The trouble started when a heat probe known as the Mole did not manage to dig into the red planet as planned last year. This was due to a lack of friction which the probe needs in order to burrow into the soil, according to a NASA statement. After several months, the NASA InSight Twitter account outlined its strategy as giving it a push with my robotic arm. And the team has now announced that progress is being made. A bit of good news from Mars, our new approach of using the robotic arm to push the mole appears to be working, it said on Twitter. Now the team hopes the mole can get on with measuring heat under the surface of the planet, providing information that will help scientists work out how Mars and all rocky planets were formed. Now on to another planet in our solar system, Jupiter. Here's the news on Jupiter now. Jupiter's great red spot may be shrinking, but its thickness is steady. Jupiter's great red spot isn't shrinking in every direction, a new study suggests. Just a few centuries ago, the famous storm was about three times wider than Earth. That is a huge storm. But its swirl of angry winds is now comparable in diameter to our home planet, leading some speculation that the great red spot may be dying. Think about that. That's a very famous red spot on Jupiter. Some recent research indicates that the vortex that powers the cyclone is going, still going strong. However, this notion is bolstered by the new study, which found that the Great Red Spot's thickness has probably remained constant over the past four decades or so. Now, we talked about this on the last S-Factor. We talked about, would you go to Mars? Remember that show? Check this out. NASA and private sector had big plans for space travel, and they're recruiting. Amid all the coronavirus worries, here's a positive development. NASA this month began taking applications for new astronauts. You probably won't qualify. Candidates must have STEM backgrounds, and the odds of being accepted in the last round were 50 times worse than, than those for Harvard applicants. Plus, NASA is at least four years away from getting anyone to the moon, though that's far from the only manned mission now on the planning boards. On the other hand, firms like Axiom Space and Elon Musk's SpaceX are starting to offer regular commercial trips that are literally out of this world. And you don't need to be a real astronaut. Now check this out. It's not cheap. You need to fork over $55 million for a seat on the first fully private sector spaceflight. Slated for next year, believe that. Complete with two days of space travel and eight days at the International Space Station. Well, better act fast, only two of the three available seats are left, reports the New York Times. But prices will come down, as long-term prospects for off-planet exploration and residency are improving. NASA is forging ahead with its Moon to Mars program with a planned lunar landing date in 2024. 
So we talked about Mars Madness last month in March, right? Instead of March Madness, Mars Madness. That was the S factor. Like I said in that show, it really seems far out. Like we're, we're never going to quite reach that where we're traveling to another planet and we're going to colonize that planet and live there and grow food there. This has only been a thing of science fiction for so many years and it's actually developing now to the point where they see this. This is on our horizon. This is not science fiction anymore. It will soon be science fact. Now we have a story from Live Science. Cat infected with COVID-19 from owner in Belgium. This is the first case of human-to-cat transmission of the novel coronavirus. A domestic cat in Belgium has been infected with COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus that's spreading across the globe. The government's FPS Public Health Food Chain Safety Environment announced March 27th, according to news reports. This is the first human-to-cat transmission of the novel coronavirus, about a week after its owner got sick with COVID-19 after returning from a trip to northern Italy. The cat developed coronavirus symptoms, diarrhea, vomiting, and respiratory issues. Stephen von Gutt, virologist and federal spokesperson for the coronavirus epidemic in Belgium, told Live Science. The cat recovered after nine days. Did you expect to hear a story like that? A cat owner transmitted the virus to his feline friend. That was an unexpected story. When I came across that, I had to share that with you. Unusual tear-shaped, half-pulsating star discovered by amateur astronomers. When stars behave strangely, astronomers take notice. In the case of a star known as HD 74423, it was an amateur astrologer who first spotted the anomaly in data captured by NASA's latest planet-hunting space satellite, TESS. What they didn't even realize was that they were looking at an entirely unknown type of star, the first of its kind. This star of interest, located about 1,500 light-years from Earth, was flagged to the astronomy community, but astronomers didn't understand it either. What first caught my attention was the fact that it was a chemically particular star, said Simon Murphy, researcher from the Sydney Institute of Astronomy at the University of Sydney. Stars like this are usually fairly rich with metals, but this is a metal-poor making it a rare type of hot star. The star is about 1.7 times the mass of our sun. That is a, an enormous that is an enormous star. And they saw it pulsating. But just on one side of the star, a heartbeat blinking at us from a great distance. Stars are known to pulsate, and even our sun exhibits this kind of activity due to hot gas churning beneath the surface, causing oscillations. No matter the age of the star or how long or short these oscillations last, all pulsating stars are usually similar in that the pulsating can be seen on all sides of the star. Until now, that is. This new star only appears to be pulsating in one hemisphere of its surface. We've known theoretically that stars like this should exist since the 1980s, said Don Kurtz, study co-author in inaugural Hunstead Distinguished Visitor at the University of Sydney from the University of Central Lancashire in Britain. I've been looking for a star like this for nearly 40 years, and now we have finally found one. Very cool story. Now, you may remember last December, the S-Factor was on a topic that is near and dear to me. 
I absolutely love science fiction movies. I love Star Trek because Star Trek gives us a little glimpse into the future, even though it's fiction. Think about how many things have happened over the years. How many technological advances mirror Star Trek? So I love that. So I always love thinking about and fantasizing about what's in store for our future. So last December's S-Factor, which by the way was the first episode, and if you missed it, you can check it out on scienceanimated.net under the S-Factor tab on the website. You can listen to past S-Factor shows. Now, the topic was transhumanism, which deals with us as human beings evolving via technology. What is the next step for us? Where are we going? It was one of my favorite shows because it's one of my favorite topics to talk about. This next news story is related to that topic. Now, this is from The Guardian. Scientists develop AI that can turn brain activity into text. Can you imagine such a thing? I know that I have Google Assistant on my phone, and I can speak to Google Assistant, and it essentially takes my voice and turns it into a text message, which it uses to do the search and so on and so forth. And I have Google uh, screening service on my phone, as a matter of fact, and, what, and how that works is when somebody calls, I don't know who it is, if it's an unfamiliar number, Google automatically starts the assistant and screens the call, tells them, you know, this is Google Assistant, the person trying to reach isn't available, and it will take that person's voice as they're speaking in real time, translate it into text in the English language so I can read it, and that, that is amazing technology. So I'm thinking that this is somewhere along the lines of that. Now, reading minds has just come a step closer to reality. Scientists have developed artificial intelligence that can turn brain activity into text. While the system currently works on neural patterns detected while someone is speaking aloud, experts say it could eventually aid communication for patients who are unable to speak or type, such as those with locked-in syndrome. We're not there yet, but we think this could be the basis of a speech prosthetic, said Dr. Joseph Macon, co-author of the research from the University of California, San Francisco. Writing in, in the journal Nature Neuroscience, Macon and colleagues reveal how they developed their system by recruiting four participants who had electrode arrays implanted in their brain to monitor epileptic seizures. Again, when we talk about transhumanism, and how we're going to merge with technology, it's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And there probably will be, I think it's going to be a very uh, soft approach. It's going to be an easy transition. Listen, we're already used to having computers by our side at all times. They're called smartphones. That makes us a lot smarter just having that smartphone with us. So it's only a matter of time before they want to put that technology inside of us now you know now you get into a whole oh boy you get into a whole area of some people are going to be really freaked out about that so i don't think it's something that's going to be adopted widely among people at least in the beginning but this is a very very interesting news story now it has its upside of course not just being smart as a whip right away and know all the answers to jeopardy right but also helping people that have a disability of some kind the technology, the implant technology, can help with that. Now, 
These participants were asked to read aloud from 50 set sentences multiple times, including Tina Turner as a pop singer, and those thieves stole 30 jewels. The team tracked their neural activity while they were speaking. This data was then fed into a machine learning algorithm, a type of artificial intelligence system, that converted the brain activity data for each spoken sentence into a string of numbers. To make sure the numbers related only to aspects of speech, the system compared sounds predicted from small chunks of the brain activity data with actual recorded audio. The string of numbers was then fed into a second part of the system, which converted it into a sequence of words. At first, the system spat out nonsense sentences. But as the system compared each sequence of words with sentences that were actually read aloud, it improved. Learning the string of numbers related to words and which words tend to flow and which words tend to follow each other. The team then tested the system, generating written text from just the brain activity during speech. The system was not perfect. Among, among its mistakes, those musicians harmonized marvelously was decoded as this spinach was a famous singer. <laughs> so as you can tell, not a perfect such not a perfect uh, solution or system yet. The spinach was a famous singer, and a roll of wire lay near the wall became, Will Robin wear a yellow lily? So there's a little confusion there. But of course, you know, the algorithm is technology is very new, and it's going to learn from itself. However, the team found the accuracy of the new system was far higher than previous approaches. While accuracy varied from person to person, for one participant, just 3% of each sentence on average needed correcting higher than the word error rate of 5% for professional human transcribers. But the team stress, unlike the latter, their algorithm only handles a small number of sentences. If you try to go outside, the decoding gets much worse, adding that the system is likely relying on a combination of learning particular sentences, identifying words from brain activity, and recognizing general patterns in English. The team also found that training the algorithm on one participant's data meant less training data was needed from the final user, something that could make training less erroneous for patients. Dr. Christine Herf, who was not involved in the study, said research was exciting because the system used less than 40 minutes of training data for each participant and a limited collection of sentences rather than millions of hours typically needed. By doing so, they achieved levels of accuracy that haven't been achieved so far. However, he noted the system was not yet usable for many severely disabled patients, as it relied on brain activity recorded from people speaking a sentence out loud. Of course, this is a fantastic research, but those people who could just use OK Google as well. This is not translation of thought, but of brain activity involved in speech. Herf said people should not worry about others reading their thoughts just yet. The brain electrodes must be implanted. While imagined speech is very different to inner voice. But Dr. Manoz Everett, an expert in brain machine interfaces at Sheffield University, said it was important to consider ethical issues now. We are still very, very far away from the point that machines can read our minds, she said. But it doesn't mean that we should not think about it and we should not plan about it. Now, again, all of this technology, the futurist in me, I love reading things that Dr. Michu Kaku Professor at MIT, what he talks about in his books and when he's on television, and he gives that futurist view, he, he kind of tells you what to expect moving forward, what things you can expect. Now, all of this, the only way we're going to merge with our devices, the only way we're going to evolve and be a combined force with our tech is going to be if we don't 
war with each other and wipe ourselves off the planet. And if there isn't some kind of big natural disaster or cataclysmic event from space. So if neither of those things have none of the above happens, and let's say we move forward with our civilization, we are going to have to encounter, we're going to have to meet these issues head on. We're going to have to talk about and debate until we're blue in the face the ethics behind this. Once we, once we start merging our minds with AI or our minds connect with the internet in the cloud, so to speak, once we go there, that's really going to be scary to a lot of people. And the whole, it reminds me of the Borg from Star Trek, the assimilation thing, that kind of freaks me out. I'm going to be honest with you. The technology is going to come. Unless something happens to our civilization, we are going to have to talk about this because it's coming. Now that is a very tantalizing news story, isn't it? Again, I want to thank you for joining me. You are listening to The S Factor. My name is Chuck Shazer, your host. It is a pleasure to bring all this cool science news to you. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, I want to talk about viruses. What are they? How do they work when we come back? Right here on The S Factor with your host, Chuck Shazer. Oh no, no one wants to hear that sound. If you are involved in a motor vehicle accident, I have the body shop for you. Trust the professionals at Cherry Hill Collision. Cherry Hill Collision is a proud member of the iCar Gold program. To perform collision repair in the state of New Jersey, a body shop is required to have a license to do business, but there's no requirement to have training on how to properly repair a vehicle. iCar is the predominant source for training in the collision industry. Many shops will get iCar trained, but only the best shops will go the extra mile and get iCar Gold trained, and the professional staff at Cherry Hill Collision is trained in the iCar Gold program. So if you're in an accident, you can rest easy. Cherry Hill Collision will return your car as safe as the day it was built. Your car was designed to keep you safe in a collision, and thankfully, it did its job. Cherry Hill Collision will put it back together to keep you safe once more. They realize that cars can be repaired, but people can't. That's why they provide the safest, correct repairs, and they are the highest rated auto repair shop in Camden County, New Jersey. There is a right way to make repairs that many car owners aren't aware of. They are here to help. Cherry Hill Collision is also a certified repair facility for several vehicle manufacturers. They also service all oversized vehicles, including transits and sprinters. So if you have been in an accident, call 856-663-0500. Again, that number is 856-663-0500. Cherry Hill Collision is located at 326 Haddonfield Road in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Cherry Hill Collision, making your life easier. Check out Cherry Hill Collision online at cherryhillcollision.com. Car buying can be a brutal experience. Pushy salespeople and deals that are too good to be true. Choosing the right dealership is crucial in today's marketplace. So, where can you go? Since 1976, there has been a dealership in Vineland that is family-owned and operated and has a diverse selection of cars, trucks, utility vehicles, and more. 
JNC Auto Sales at 1912 West Landis Avenue in Vineland can guide you through the car buying experience with no hassle and a laid back atmosphere. The Shazer brothers carefully select each vehicle they sell and offer Carfax reports on all their inventory. Shop in a stress-free environment and get the vehicle you want at a price that won't rock your bank account. Stop by and mention the S-Factor for a special offer. JNC Auto Sales is located at 1912 West Landis Avenue in Vineland. You can give them a call today at 856-696-4072. That's 856-696-4072. Or check them out online at jcauto.net. Serving South Jersey for 44 years. Spring is here. Warmer weather, flowers are blooming, and you can start fresh in a brand new home. There are plenty of beautiful homes in the area, and interest rates are at near record lows, so now is a great time to buy. Now maybe you'd like to finally purchase that investment property you've always wanted. Or maybe you'd like to sell a home or property. Realtor Tyra Shazer can assist you in buying or selling any home or property. Contact Tyra Shazer at Remax Platinum Properties at 609-402-1992. Again, that's 609-402-1992. Or email her at tyrasdreamhomes at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Tara Shazer, and I'm ready to help you find your dream home. Welcome back to the S-Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. If you like what you're hearing, this is all about science, and you can catch me here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. The first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock right here on Cruise 92.1. And if you happen to miss an episode of The S-Factor, if, if you're a new listener and you kind of want to figure out and find out what we talked about in the past episodes, you can check out scienceanimated.net, click on The S-Factor, and I have a podcast of this show and all the past shows right there on scienceanimated.net. Now, I just want to take a minute and thank all the essential workers out there, healthcare workers, people that are on the front lines facing this coronavirus thing. As I said earlier, I'm not in the studio. Hopefully I'll be in the studio again next month. This is a pre-recorded broadcast. So I like being in the studio because I like taking phone calls, so we won't be having any phone calls today. I always like to hear what you guys have to say. So if you want to catch me on social media, you can catch me at facebook.com slash scienceanimated and also Twitter at scienceanimated. So this virus is really something, isn't it? I mean, it's really affecting every facet of our life. And I just want to say be careful out there. Maintain your social distancing. And, you know, you can catch this thing very easily you can catch it through your, your breathing. You can catch it by touching your, your face, your eye. So just be really careful out there. Be safe. Take care of yourself and your family and your friends. And check up on older people in your family. This coronavirus has kind of brought me to our topic today. We're not going to talk about the coronavirus per se. But I want to talk about viruses. What are they? I mean, what are they really? How do they work? What do they do? What do they want with us, right? So, viruses are microscopic parasites, generally much smaller than bacteria. They lack the capacity to thrive and reproduce outside of a host body. So they need us in animals to survive. 
Predominantly, viruses have a reputation for being the cause of contagion. Widespread events of disease and death have no doubt bolstered such a reputation. The 2014 outbreak of Ebola in West Africa and the 2009 H1N1 swine flu pandemic likely come to mind. While such viruses certainly are woolly foes for scientists and medical professionals, other than their ilk, have been instrumental as research tools, furthering the understanding of basic cellular processes, such as the mechanics of protein synthesis and the viruses themselves. Now, when were these viruses discovered? How do we come across these things? How do we know so much about them? How much smaller are most viruses in comparison to bacteria, for example? Well, quite a bit. With a diameter of 220 nanometers, the measles virus is about eight times smaller than E. coli bacteria. Eight times smaller at 45 nanometers. A nanometer is so tiny. The hepatitis virus is about 40 times smaller than E. coli. For a sense of how small this is, David R. Wessner, professor of biology at Davison's College, provides an analogy in a 2010 article published in a journal Nature Education. The polio virus, 30 nanometers across, is about 10,000 times smaller than a grain of salt. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to think about that. The polio virus is 30 nanometers across, 10,000 times smaller than a grain of salt. If you're home listening to the S-Factor right now, and if you're in your kitchen, do me a favor. Take a grain of salt, put it on your kitchen counter, and imagine... The polio virus itself is 10,000 times smaller than that. It is so hard to wrap your head around that, isn't it? Such differences in size between viruses and bacteria provide the critical first clue of the former's existence. Toward the end of the 19th century, the notion that microorganisms, especially bacteria, could cause disease was well established. However, researchers looking into a troubling disease in tobacco the tobacco mosaic disease, were somewhat stumped as to its cause. In an 1886 research paper titled Concerning the Mosaic Disease of Tobacco, Adolf Mayer, a German chemist and agricultural researcher, published the results of his extensive experiments. In particular, Mayer found that when he crushed up infected leaves and injected the noxious juice into the veins of the healthy tobacco leaves, it resulted in a yellowish speckling and discoloration characteristic of the disease. Mayer correctly surmised that whatever was causing tobacco mosaic disease was in the leafy juice. However, more concrete results eluded him. Mayer felt certain that whether whatever was causing the disease was of bacterial origin, but when he was unable to isolate the disease-causing agent or identify it under a microscope, nor could he recreate the disease by injecting healthy plants with a range of known bacteria. It kind of reminds me of, in Science Animated, The Human Body, which is a film that's available through my website, scienceanimated.net, I have a character that is a, you know, evildoer, so to speak. A miscreant, if you will. And his name is King Bach. He's a staph infection. And he's the big baddie of Science Animated, The Human Body. So here we're talking about bacteria. In 1892, a Russian student named... Dmitry Avosky essentially repeated Mayer's juicy experiments, but with a bit of a twist. According to a 1972 article published in a journal, Bacterial Reviews, Avosky passed the juice from infected leaves through a Chamberlain filter, 
a filter fine enough to capture bacteria and other known microorganisms. Despite the sieving, the liquid filtrate remained infectious, suggesting a new piece to the puzzle. Whatever was causing the disease was small enough to pass through the filter. However, Avosky also concluded that the cause of tobacco mosaic disease was bacterial, suggesting the filtrate contained either bacteria or a soluble toxin. It wasn't until 1898 when the presence of viruses was acknowledged. Dutch scientist Martinus Burkett, while confirming Ivansky's results, suggested that the cause of tobacco mosaic disease was not bacterial, but a living liquid virus, referring to it by the now outdated term, filterable virus. The experiments that followed only pointed to the existence of viruses. It would take a few more decades before anyone actually saw a virus. According to a 2009 article published in the journal Clinical Microbiology Reviews, once the electron microscope was developed in 1931 by German scientists Ernst Ruska and Max Knoll, the first virus could be visualized with a new high-resolution technology. These first images taken by Ruska and colleagues in 1939 were of the tobacco mosaic virus. Thus, the discovery of viruses came full circle. The first images of viruses were basically taken in 1939, so that's not that long ago in the large scheme of things. Now, viruses teeter on the boundaries of what is considered life. On one hand, they contain the key elements that make up all living organisms, the nucleic acids, DNA or RNA. On the other hand, viruses lack the capacity to independently read and act upon the information contained within these nucleic acids. A minimal virus is a parasite that requires replication in a host cell. The virus cannot reproduce itself outside the host because it lacks the complicated machinery that a host cell possesses. The host cellular machinery allows viruses to produce RNA from their DNA and to build proteins based on the instructions encoded in the RNA. So the virus, that's why they call it a parasite, because it feeds off of a host. So the virus needs a host to survive. When a virus is completely assembled and capable of infection, it is known as a virion. According to the authors of Medical Microbiology 4th Edition, the structure of a simple virion comprises of an inner nucleic acid core surrounded by an outer casing of proteins known as a capsid. Capsids protect viral nucleic acids from being chewed up and destroyed by special host cell enzymes called nuclease. Some viruses have a second protective layer known as the envelope. This layer is usually derived from the cell membrane of a host, little bits that are modified and repurposed for the virus to use. The DNA and RNA found in the core of a virus can be single-stranded or double-stranded. It constitutes the genome or the sum total of a virus's genetic information. Viral genomes are genetically small in size, coding only for essential proteins such as capsid proteins, enzymes, and proteins necessary for replication within a host cell. So we're beginning to see how viruses work, right? We're beginning to see how invasive they are. They come into your body. They can't survive on their own. So once they enter your body, they are taking your cell's DNA and they're creating RNA from it. This is going to help them survive. It'll help them replicate. The primary role of the virus, or virion, 
is to deliver its DNA or RNA genome into the host cell so that the genome can be expressed by the host cell, according to medical microbiology. First, viruses need to access the inside of the host body. Respiratory passages and open wounds can act as gateways for viruses. Remember, this is why the coronavirus is spreading so easily. Sometimes insects provide the mode of entry. Certain viruses will hitch a ride in an insect's saliva, listen to this, and enter the host's body after the insect bites. According to the authors of Molecular Biology of the Cell, 4th edition, such viruses can replicate inside both insect and host cells, ensuring a smooth transition from one to the other. Examples include the viruses that cause yellow fever and dinge fever. Viruses will then attach themselves to host cell surfaces. They do so by recognizing and binding to cell surface receptors. Many different viruses can bind to the same receptor, and a single virus can bind different cell surface receptors. While viruses use them to their advantage, cell surface receptors are actually designed to serve the cell. Again, it's hijacking that. The, cells, the, the, the receptors are designed to serve the cell itself, not the virus. But the virus says, uh-uh, I'm going to use you. After a virus binds to the surface of the host cell, it can start to move across the outer covering or membrane of the host cell. There are many different modes of entry. HIV, a virus with an envelope, fuses with the membrane and is pushed through. Another envelope virus, the influenza virus, is engulfed by the cell. Some non-enveloped viruses, such as the polio virus, create a porous channel of entry and burrow through the membrane. Once inside, viruses release their genomes and also disrupt or hijack various parts of the cellular machinery. Viral genomes direct host cells to ultimately produce virus proteins, many a time halting the synthesis of any RNA and proteins that the host cell can use. Ultimately, viruses stack the deck in their favor, both inside the host cell and within the host cell itself, by creating conditions that allow for them to spread. For example, when suffering from the common cold, one sneeze emits 20,000 droplets containing rhinovirus or coronavirus particles. Touching or breathing those droplets in is all it takes for a cold to spread. Now, ladies and gentlemen, think about how easy that is. If you're working in an office, 20,000 droplets come from one sneeze. And I've seen research where they had someone sneeze, and it can travel 15 feet away. No wonder why it's so easy to catch colds from people, right? You don't have to be that close. 15 feet away, you know, if you're out there working, wherever you're working, whether you're a teacher or you're working in an office in any size, whatever job you're working and you're around other people, think about that a minute. If someone sneezes and they have just a common cold, the sneeze can go 15 feet, disperses out, and one sneeze contains 20,000 droplets that contain virus. That is incredible, isn't it? Understanding the relationships between viruses began with noting similarities in shape and size, whether viruses contained DNA or RNA, and in which form. 
With better methods to sequence and compare viral genomes and with their constant influx of new scientific data, what we know about viruses and their histories is constantly being fine-tuned. And it's the same thing with this COVID-19. We've never experienced anything quite like this. I mean, it's a, it's a different kind of a virus that we're dealing with. You know, there's similarities between all of these viruses, but how to treat them, the, the fine details we're, we're learning right now. Until 1992, the notion that viruses were much smaller than bacteria with tiny genomo, genomes was taken for granted. That year, scientists discovered a bacteria-like structure within some amoeba in a water cooling tower, according to Westner. As it turns out, what they discovered was not a bacterial species, but a very large virus, which they dubbed minivirus. The virus is about 750 nanometers in size, and may also have the same staining properties as gram-positive bacteria. This was followed by the discovery of other large viruses such as the mamavirus and megavirus. Pretty cool names, right? It is not known how these large viruses evolved. It is not known how these large viruses evolved, Dudley said, referring to them as the elephants of the virus world. They may be degenerate cells which have become parasites of other cells, like the mimiviruses infect amoeba, or they may be more typical viruses that keep acquiring additional host genes, she added. Mimiviruses require host cellular machinery to produce proteins just like other small viruses. However, their genome still contains many remnants of genes associated with the process of translation. It is possible that mimiviruses may have once been independent cells, or they could have simply acquired the and acquired and accumulated some host genes, Wesser wrote. Such discoveries bring up new questions and open new avenues of research. In the future, these studies may provide answers to fundamental questions about the origins of viruses, how they reached their present parasite state, and whether viruses should be included in the tree of life. Now, if you're like me, you've heard a lot about the Spanish flu. They've talked about that as really the last pandemic, the last major pandemic that we had. Now, according to the CDC website, the 1918 H1N1 flu pandemic, sometimes referred to as the Spanish flu, killed an estimated 50 million people worldwide, including an estimated 675,000 people in the United States. An unusual characteristic of this virus was the high death rate it caused among healthy adults, 15 to 34 years of age. The pandemic lowered the average life expectancy in the United States by more than 12 years. A comparable death rate has not been observed during any of the known flu seasons or pandemics that have occurred either prior to or following the 1918 pandemic. The virus's unique severity puzzled researchers for decades and prompted several questions. What caused the Spanish flu? It's unknown exactly where the particular strain of influenza that caused the pandemic came from. However, the 1918 flu was first observed in Europe, America, and Asia before spreading to almost every other part of the planet within a matter of months. Despite the fact that the 1918 flu wasn't isolated to one place, it became known around the world as the Spanish flu, as Spain was hit hard by the disease and was not subject to the wartime news blackouts that affected other European countries. One unusual aspect of the 1918 flu was that it struck down many previously healthy young people, a group normally resistant to this type of infectious illness. 
including a number of World War I servicemen. In fact, more U.S. soldiers died from the 1918 flu than were killed in battle during the war. 40% of the U.S. Navy was hit with the flu, while 36% of the Army became ill, and troops moving around the world in crowded ships and trains helped to spread the killer virus. Although the death toll attributed to the Spanish flu is often estimated at 20 million to 50 million victims worldwide, other estimates run as high as 100 million victims, around 3% of the world's population. The exact numbers are impossible to know due to a lack of medical record keeping in many places. What is known, however, is that few locations were immune to the 1918 flu in America. Victims ranged from residents of major cities to those of remote Alaskan communities. Even President Woodrow Wilson reportedly contracted the flu in early 1919 while negotiating the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I. Scientists still do not know for sure where the Spanish flu originated, though theories point to France, China, Britain, or the United States where the first known case was reported at Camp Funston in Fort Raleigh, Kansas on March 11, 1918. Some believe infected soldiers spread the disease to other military camps across the country, then brought it overseas. In March 1918, 84,000 American soldiers headed across the Atlantic and were followed by 118,000 more the following month. Complicating matters was the fact that World War I had left parts of America with a shortage of physicians and other health workers. And of the available medical personnel in the U.S., many came down with the flu themselves. Additionally, hospitals in some areas were so overloaded with flu patients that schools, private homes, and other buildings had to be converted into makeshift hospitals. Additionally, hospitals in some areas were so overloaded with flu patients that schools, private homes, and other buildings had to be converted into makeshift hospitals, some of which were staffed by medical students. Officials in some communities imposed quarantines, ordered citizens to wear masks and shut down public places, including schools, churches, and theaters, People were advised to avoid shaking hands. Libraries put a halt on lending books and regulations were passed banning spitting. By the summer of 1919, the flu pandemic came to an end, and those that were infected either died or developed immunity. Almost 90 years later, in 2008, researchers announced they discovered what made the 1918 flu so deadly. A group of three genes enabled the virus to weaken a victim's bronchial tubes and lungs and clear the way for bacterial pneumonia. Since 1918, there have been several other influenza pandemics, although none is deadly. A flu pandemic from 1957 to 1958 killed around 2 million people worldwide, including some 70,000 people in the United States, and a pandemic from 1968 to 1969 killed approximately 1 million people, including some 34,000 Americans. Now, clearly, this coronavirus, COVID-19, is nowhere near as bad as the 1918 influenza pandemic. They are some startling numbers from 1918, aren't they? Absolutely terrifying. Now, they talk about how the warm weather may help us get rid of this coronavirus. So, first of all, to slow it down, that's why we're doing the social distancing. That's why we're, everyone is working from home, the people that have the essential jobs, you know. But what happens, I wondered to myself, what happens to a virus in warm weather? What is it about the warm weather? Is it the moisture? Because moisture will prevent, I know this, bacterial growth. That's why you want to use a humidifier in the winter. 
because bacteria does not like humidity. So with viruses, as far as it comes to these upcoming summer months, I heard a doctor say that ultraviolet radiation kills viruses. And where do we get UV rays from? Aha, yes, our burning star in the sky, our sun. So if we maintain the social distancing with this COVID-19 and with summer upcoming, I think we'll see a huge decrease in the number of cases with COVID-19. I hope so. I mean, this has really disrupted so much. And, and it goes to show you, ladies and gentlemen, what we can easily take for granted in our day-to-day -day life. Just gathering with a group of friends has to be postponed. And that seems like one of the simplest of things that, that human beings enjoy doing, social interactions. All it has to be set aside for now as we combat this COVID-19 situation. So make sure you're washing your hands, remaining your so social distance from everyone, and take care of yourself and your loved ones and your, your family and friends, like I said earlier, and we'll get through this. But I wanted to present this information to you today in regards to the viruses because if you're not really, maybe you learned about viruses back in, in school, and I'm sure you know we all have done that back back in the day when we're growing up. You know, you tend to forget some of that information. Even if some information is basic, it doesn't matter. You know, when you're going about your daily life, it might not be something you're thinking about all the time. Completely understandable. So I was hoping that I could present this information to you today. Kind of open your eyes as to how viruses work. And it's pretty intriguing how easily they spread. Like I mentioned the sneeze earlier. So just be, just be aware of that. I think what's going to happen overall with, with our American society here, we're kind of being forced to learn more about these viruses, aren't we? And we're going to learn how to, even when it comes to the common cold, better protect ourselves in the future. You know, if you go grocery shopping, wipe down the cart with a lot of grocery stores offer those wipes, those sanitizing wipes when you first walk in, wipe the cart down. You know, a lot of it will become second nature, I think, because of what we're experiencing right now. We'll, be, we'll pay more attention to that stuff moving forward, and that's a good thing. But I hope that this ends soon and everyone can get back to enjoying their life with the people they love. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to bring the science news and the science topics and talk about them with you. I know we couldn't have any calls today. Hopefully the next S Factor, I'll be in the studio and we can do that. Again, be careful out there. Thank you so much. Don't forget to check out scienceanimated.net. If you've got kids at home, you're looking for something for them to, to look at, family-friendly content, family-friendly educational content at scienceanimated.net. You have been listening to The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. You can catch me right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT the first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock. It is such a pleasure to be with you. Can't wait to talk to you again. Take care, everybody. You have been listening to The S Factor, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruisin' 92.1 WVLT. Sing.